18 billion pounds of plastic enter our oceans each year, and that only accounts for a portion of our planet's pollution crisis. Ben Neppers co-founded Boreo, an innovative B Corp that recycles harmful fishing nets into new products like skateboards, sunglasses, and Patagonia hats. This episode features a pre-recorded interview from our virtual alumni event in January. It's moderated by Martine Enkema Van Dyke, a Northeastern Young Global Leader and Operations Manager of Van Dyke Recycling Solutions. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so my name is Martin Enkema Van Dyke. I was asked to moderate this talk because of the industry I'm currently in. I'm the Operations Manager at Van Dyke Recycling Solutions, which is a family company, and we specialize in the design, sales, and service of state-of-the-art recycling equipment. We're headquartered in Norwalk, Connecticut, However, the origins of our business and my family lay in the Netherlands. And I studied structural engineering at Northeastern, graduating with my bachelor's in 2014 and my master's in 2015, along with the certificate in engineering leadership from the Gordon Institute. I'm also a member of the Young Global Leaders Group at Northeastern. It's through our mutual connections at Northeastern that Ben and I were connected, and we discovered that we actually have similar backgrounds. Ben has also traveled the world and used his global and co-op experiences to find his path in life and get to where he is today, which brings me to our topic of discussion. It's clear that the plastics pollution problem in our oceans is a worldwide issue as 18 billion pounds or 8 million metric tons of plastic end up in our oceans each year. This makes plastic one of the most common elements found in our ocean today, and it's estimated that in less than 30 years, ocean plastic will outweigh all of the ocean's fish. The long-term effects of plastic pollution are not even realized yet, as the plastic takes on average about 400 years to degrade and releases toxic chemicals as it does so. Not to mention, the plastics break down into microplastics, which find our way, way into our own food chain. Ben has spent the past seven years building Bureo, an emerging B corporation, creating a net positive end-of-life recycling solution for these discarded fishing nets, which are one of the most harmful contributors to the ocean plastic problem. Originally from the south coast of Massachusetts, Ben graduated from Northeastern, which is Bachelor in Science and Mechanical Engineering in 2007. And then he went on to get his master's at the Blekinge Institute of Technology in Sweden in strategic leadership towards sustainability. Again, with much credit to his international co-op experiences in Northeastern, Ben lived and worked in over 10 countries across four continents and is now residing in Sao Paulo, Brazil with his wife and his two-year-old daughter. I'm just brushing the surface here with this intro and uh, Ben will do a much better job. So I'd like him to share his story. Thank you, Martin. I, I definitely want to give a bit of background to highlight how much Northeastern played a critical role in my life that helped shape my experience and in, in, in the world, not only academically and, and what led to my professional career, but personally to, to find my passions and, and which brought me to where I'm at today with Boreo. I grew up on the South Coast, just outside of Cape Cod, in an um, area called Batafoyset. Coming into Northeastern, my, my whole idea was, okay, tap into this, these abilities I clearly have in, in rapid science, but then use that co-op experience to find what I'm really passionate about. And so I really tried to take advantage of that um, in every, every co-op opportunity I had. I, I did my first one in Southern California for a biomedical company doing research and development, um, then went on to uh, Galway, Ireland for my second one, got a really great taste of Europe being there. Um, and then my third one, I actually got the opportunity to work in a refugee settlement in Zambia. 
what I really got out of that was feeling of, of there's no justifiable reason why you find people like this. And, and I wanted answers. Um, some of the hard, most hardworking, generous, good hearted people I've ever met were, were unfortunately um, had to flee their country due to civil war in most cases and, and ended up in this refugee settlement with, with at best one or two family members, a pot in a pan and a tent and, and that was about it. And I wanted answers. And, and so I got introduced then to the field of sustainability and it led, led me to the understandings of, of the systemic challenges the world's facing and the really the, the, the crisis we're, we're facing in terms of um, continuing to systematically drive, our, drive the world towards uh, an unsustainable future. We're just simply consuming and creating systemic uh, issues that are just driving us in the wrong direction. And, and I was completely sold on, on that was what I really wanted to take on. With that connection, I, I got my first um, steps in my career as a sustainability consultant working in, in life cycle assessment, where I worked in New Zealand, Australia, and then eventually led me to Chile, this incredible country that was still, as an ocean lover, still taken aback by how untouched it was. Many people say Chile is basically what Southern California is like 50, 60 years ago. Beautiful, untouched coastline still. Um, very lo little development for such absolutely pristine areas, but it is still modern day. And so the, the things that we were seeing on the ground was it was still completely impacted by the, the issues of plastic pollution, um, it, the industrial development that is continuing to, to grow in those areas and, and the burden that it, it's being faced by, the consequences that's being faced by that. Simple things like eucalyptus plantations that were being put in a, a foreign tree that um, was consuming so much water in the area that local people couldn't even have clean drinking water. Um, I also saw a great opportunity. And uh, the Chilean government had huge support systems specifically for entrepreneurs. Now, although my dad uh, came and started his own business in, in flower bulbs and, and my uncles in, in Holland as well got into that space, I really never saw myself necessarily being an entrepreneur. But I don't know, there was something with, with that perfect combination of things in Chile. And I guess also continuing to work as a consultant where I wasn't seeing the change I was expecting to see by that point of just writing a report to have a meeting to write a report. Maybe I was getting too impatient, but, but with all those opportunities perfectly mixing and gelling and, and while I was in Chile, I, I relayed this to, to two of my really good friends um, that were, were, were really connected over any, more than anything surfing. I met in Australia uh, while living there for four and a half years and our, our appreciation for the ocean environment. Uh, one of them, David Stover, was, was well into his career as a financial consultant. And the other one, Kevin Ahern, was well into his career as a design engineer. And we just would always have these offline discussions when we would go on surf trips about what if we could do something more meaningful? Like we're developing these skill sets. What if we could combine them more with our passions like, like I always dreamed of? And, and so when all that, that opportunity arose in Chile, there was a next, the next funding round for a specific program called, called Startup Chile, which anyone out there that's looking to start a, a, a new business, it's really arguably one of the best offers you can find. It, it's, um, you, you submit your business plan, your application, your CVs, 
And if you get accepted, you get from 30 to $100,000 in startup funds through the phases of the program. Visas to come and, and a commitment to come and live and work in Chile for at least six months to come and set up your business. And it's been an incredibly successful program. Um, we were generation eight, and I think they're now, in, gosh, like generation 40 or 50 by now. But at, at that point in time, we saw the next application deadline was six months out, and we just put it on ourselves. Let's, let's just have a go. Let's use these six months, all of our free time, and this, this fascination we had uh, around plastic pollution to do something to take it on to, to protect the place we love, which was the ocean environment. When we dug into it, there's so much research, and we, we'll dive, we can dive deeper on this later with Martin, but um, the, the three main points we saw that were really tangible and solvable when it came to avoiding plastic pollution in our oceans is, is one, um, education. Still to this day, people don't know the consequences of, of discarding plastic pollution. Uh, it's pretty remarkable to think that something like a nylon fishing net being dropped in the ocean, something that's designed to trap and degrade marine life, can last over 500 years. Previously, that was a biodegradable material that would break down, but now nobody really taught them the consequences of discarding plastic. The second one is, um, is infrastructure. There's a, the lion's share of the plastic pollution, as you can imagine, it's pretty straightforward if you think about it, is from land-based sources. So if you actually look upstream and stop it at its source and have solutions for it by designing it in the manner of a circular economy where really nothing is waste, we, we can prevent it from getting out there in the first place. And the third one was behavior change. The deeper intrinsic point was if you can show there's value in a material, people won't discard it. And so based on those points, we came up with this concept of what if we could take on a really common and, and problematic source of plastic pollution by taking it on upstream, working together with the, the communities that, that are generating this because of the lack of infrastructure and understanding, and instead transform into a high value material source that we can then make into positive products that can then in, in turn scale and continue to provide a solution for this material. And after scouring what was out there, the material that really stuck to us was this problem of discarded fishing nets. It is, um, in terms of entrapment of marine life, it's four times more harmful than all other forms of ocean plastic pollution combined. And when I was in Chile, which has a very strong presence of not only commercial, but artisanal fishermen, I would literally go and ask around the fishermen, what were you doing with your nets? And to my amazement, the answers were consistently, especially on, on the artisanal small scale level, um, we either would dump it in the ocean, or if it was too big of a pile for us to move, we'd light it on fire on the beach. And come to find out that is releasing uh, toxic fumes that if you were to inhale directly, it could kill you. And so it's pretty remarkable to see that this is a really abundant material that, that could turn over as, as often as a weekly basis that they weren't having a solution for. And so with that, I brought in my two other partners. David really fit in well with the finance side of it, how to build a business around this. Okay, we got to transform this, not just into another fishing net, but something of higher value so that we can continue to not just cover the cost of this, but, but scale. Um, and then Kevin, who really gave us the insight on, on helping us identify this material because his feedback was consistently, 
you can't just collect any plastic, especially stuff out in an ocean, um, because it degrades, it's mixed, it, and, and Martin is going to know a lot more about that, I'm sure. If you don't have a uniform source of plastic to recycle, you're probably not going to be able to recycle it very effectively. So the benefit of a fishing net is it's almost always made of one uniform type of plastic. So when you find one net, you can be fairly confident that it's all, all one type of plastic material being made in it. So it's great for recycling. And so with that concept, we, we were awarded that grant from Startup Chile and we launched um, our, pro, our business, Boreo, in, in the end of 2013, where we packed up our things, walked away from our day jobs and went all in to, funny enough, make our very first product, which we set out to be, I mean, suitable, I guess, for surfers, a plastic cruiser skateboard deck you could transform one kilo, about 2.2 pounds of plastic into this skateboard deck that now put some wheels and trucks on it, it's worth over a hundred dollars. And so that was a really great fit for us from a, a financial standpoint. We did a lot, a lot of research and development. I, I also talked to my former professors at Northeastern during this time to get the right in, insight. They actually connected us with UMass Lowell, where we did a lot of trials to understand the material proper, mechanical properties and structural properties of, of the plastic. They recycled samples of nets for us early on. And in May of uh, 2014, we launched our Kickstarter to, to raise the money for our first production run of skateboards. And we're on, we're off on the races and it was a great achievement. It was a great accomplishment for us. And, and we were, we were ticking away as a, as a small business, but what we were continuing to find was as much as we were getting traction, selling a few skateboard, a few thousand skateboards a year through our, our business of, of Boreo, we were seeing far more fishing nets. We were getting traction with turning over year after year, where unfortunately at that point, we, we just had to turn them away because we didn't have the capacity to, to recycle all those nets. Again, if we're only selling a couple thousand skateboards a year, we only need to recycle a couple thousand kilos of, of fishing nets. And what we were finding was hundreds, if not thousands of tons of fishing nets turning over year after year. And so what that's led us to today is a really exciting transformation that we've gone through with our, um, our partner now to this day, um, Patagonia. So Patagonia, the, the outdoor apparel company, I'm sure you guys are recognized for, you're aware of for their um, environmental responsibility. Um, they really set the bar that, in that space and we've always looked up to them starting up Rail. They have a fund called the Tin Shed Venture Fund, which is that uh, they provide um, small seed investments in early stage startups that are really aligning with Patagonia's values and even maybe have the potential of, of working right alongside Patagonia. And although we started with this idea of just being a, a skateboard company, making recycled fishing at skateboards, what, what it eventually led us to is we are now actually a raw material supplier for Patagonia supply chain. And not only that, they, they, the way Patagonia does things is it's not just for their benefit, it's to change the market. So we have now been working with Patagonia's materials development team for the past five years on innovative methods for getting a much higher grade quality and performance out of the recycled fishing net material. We're now branded Net Plus to incorporate in not only their product line to, to launch, but then the entire market. And so now, instead of doing the couple thousands of tons of year, we've now expanded our operation already to Argentina and Peru, and we're continuing from there. 
uh, we're on track to do well over a thousand tons a year. And that's really just the beginning. This is a global problem and our mission is to provide a global solution. And so we've done, show you a couple projects we've done to date. So we've done some early adopters. So Coast to Sunglasses, we did a line of sunglasses with them. So these frames are 100% recycled fishing nets um, sourced through our program. Um, and our first collaboration with Patagonia to date is making all the hat rims for their, their, all of their trucker hats. And it's something that you don't really think of, but every single hat that's being made has virgin plastic in the hat room. Nobody really thinks about it. And now through the research development, we went through Patagonia, which by the way, was not easy to get the right fit and, and, and holding the shape and so forth. Um, we now have replaced all of it with our, our recycled fishing net. And we already have a whole list of companies ready to take that on next. Just these simple low hanging fruits to start, but it's, it's already making a big difference in, in our operation and the number of communities and fisheries we have to work with. And that's really where we're at today. I, I'd love to get into this discussion further with Martin now because um, I know there's so much to dive into. Um, but, but to give you a snapshot, we're, we're operating across those three countries. We're headquartered in, in Ventura, California, alongside Patagonia. And our goal is really to just continue to provide this proven solution to every fishery in need. Because um, whether we like it or not, fishing nets meet their end of life. And we have a really awesome solution for them now. It's just a great story. I, I actually, I'll start off with just where did the name Boreo come from, actually? I'm great you brought that up because I did not fit that in there. There's a little sunny side story to that. When we just were coming with the concept of, of being a skateboard company and, and our skateboards are actually in the shape of a, of a fish, a small fish, we originally thought of going with minnow skateboards. Minnow is a common small fish. I grew up catching with, with nets and, and you, you find everywhere in, in around New England and, and we were making these small skateboard decks. So I thought minnow skateboards, that's great. And I ran it by my friends in Chile, living in Chile at the time, and they were saying, uh-uh. And, and the thing about Chilean Spanish is there's a lot of slang. And they were going over with me. They said, remember what, you know, that slang word mina? And I was like, yeah, and that's like for an attractive girl. And they're like, okay, well, the masculine version of that is mino, which is very similar sounding to mino, which is basically an attractive boy. So we were, I was proposing in, in Chilean terms to call ourselves the attractive boy skateboard company. So that wasn't really going to work. So we went back to the drawing board and I really went back to the fact that we started this in Chile. We wanted to recognize the country that gave us this opportunity. And I learned about the Mapuche people and, and they have their own language, the native people of Chile. And a really beautiful word we discovered in that journey was the word Boreo, which actually means waves. And so first and foremost, we chose to recognize Chile, the country that gave us this opportunity. But also it's very symbolic of this crazy mission we've been on. Um, a, a wave starts with this small disturbance on the surface of the ocean. And what we were doing in a way was creating this small change in an ocean of plastic. But just as a wave works, with more time and energy, we could, in, in theory, uh, create this great force of change, just like a wave does in, in, in an ocean of plastic pollution. And so that just clicked. That's it, we're Boreo. 
Yeah, and you're certainly making waves now. <laughs> no, and I, I actually, I mean, you you touched on it too, is educating people on how to recycle and what to do. And as in our industry, we see it too. It's not that people don't want to do it. It's more often than not, either they're not sure how to, or there's just a missing link in that infrastructure. There's some part of it that doesn't make sense to them, either financially or, or structurally. How can you talk about how you identified what was needed specifically for the fishing nets uh, and how you set up those missing connections? Yeah. So we actually have two kind of streams where we get the nets from. So one is uh, the, the commercial and one is the artisanal. In the case of artisanal, these are low income fishing communities. So these people are very much based on subsistence based living and, and are just, you know, trying to get by. And then unfortunately in, a, in an industry that is getting smaller and smaller because of all of the overfishing activity and the other complications that's been facing their work straightforward, it was about value. And so when we got to connect the material with value by providing a direct compensation for every kilo that they were actively returning to us, they saw value, they saw the incentive and everything clicked. Then the, the surprise to us was when we actually came back and presented the products and, and gave them samples and so forth of what we were making with it, it even went a whole step further where they were getting it as a source of pride that honestly we weren't expecting. And, and it's really helped us take it an even step further of their engagement. So really the, the main things on the artisanal side have been that financial incentive, the making a really simple ease of infrastructure. So having really accessible people to either be available to, to, to manage the nets in each community or a, a really accessible and easy drop-off point in each community for the fishermen to directly take action themselves. In the case of the commercial fisheries, it's a very different approach. They have very comprehensive infrastructure in place to do the management of their nets. And so they pre previously were actually having a lot of times to have to pay to send this to a landfill. And so by simply offering them the free service of, of removing their nets was already a good step in the right direction. But what we were showing beyond that was by receiving the nets for free, we were opening ourselves up with a greater budget to do more work. We instead committed to donating that money to local nonprofits that would then do meaningful environmental programs in their area. And so it was creating a really different value that was in some ways you know, if, if not greater than what we could offer them financially. Uh, because now it wasn't just about, hey, we're recycling our nets and not sending them to the landfill or, or dumping them in the ocean, but we're also um, doing something much greater by creating a positive social impact, all by simply giving these guys, these gringos on the ground, access to our, our trash. And so it became a really big win-win-win for us. And it's been something we've grown where we've, we've generated over 100,000 U.S. dollars over the course of that program in Chile, and now it's already expanded to to Peru and Argentina. You you mentioned that that at first it was these financial incentives for the, for these local fishermen. Um, was that subsidized at first, basically by the funds that you had done, and then became profitable afterwards? Very little. Um, those funds were really more for the the startup costs of equipment, securing a warehouse facility, and and just getting us up off the ground. What really sustains it is is when we were able to then transform that material into a high value product, and then that be being fed to then not only cover that cost, but but allow us to work with a lot more communities and source a lot more material. 
Can you talk a little bit about the research you had to do to find out how to get such a high value product out of fishing nets? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I can say specifically on the side, you know, we started out with a skateboard, not knowing really much, but again, I have really complimentary partners. I was coming from this life cycle sciences side of, of being on the ground in Chile. So I could really be in getting into that supply chain, lining up all the partners. David was the financial guy. So he was, he was coming from working as a financial consultant at Ernst Young. So he was great as, as seeing the, the business case and, and the business model for us. And then Kevin, as a design engineer, was perfect to do to fill that role of the research development. So he, he did all the CAD work and everything. But really where it started is we simply took samples of, of the fishing nets that were found in those communities. We brought them to UMass Lowell. They, they um, got it to pellet and made tensile bars where they got to get the, the, the structural properties of, of the plastic. Um, Kevin then made the CAD model of our skateboard design and, and put in those properties to see how, how well it would perform. We then also did some reverse engineering of existing plastic cruiser skateboards in the market, did some tensile tests at UMS Low on, on those boards to understand how those were performing. And then we did a couple rounds of 3D printing to see how the design would feel and work. But eventually it was um, a matter of, of getting the, the mold made with our Chilean recycling and manufacturing partner in Santiago and, and actually getting the board to, to, to work. And that was what we called the stomp test. Our number one priority was we did not want the board to snap in the middle of it because that would be really make it very quickly quite useless. So there was a lot of trials of, of increasing the ribbing and, and, and other opportunities for reinforcing. And, and um, eventually we got to the right fit. And the key step we found was getting those material properties from the plastics engineering lab. And, and that really helped guide us the rest of the way. And was it very similar for Patagonia as well? Or did Patagonia do that research on their side? It was a lot more comprehensive with Patagonia, but it was a similar process. The nice thing about working with Patagonia is once you get through all the hoops of Patagonia's requirements for being their, their material supplier, everyone else is really easy. So they have standards like red, red list substances. So you have to get like in parts per million, your material tested to, to see if there's any traces of, of harmful substances in, in the material. So that was a, a, a big uh, process for us to have to go through. Every single batch of material we supply to them has to go through that. So that was a really big step up for us, you know, making sure all of our quality control was in place. And then beyond that was every product had a, its own very specific performance, like the hat brim, which is the first one we started. But we have a whole laundry list from there where not only does the, the product get made and, and they see how it works, but they actually send it to their ambassadors, their professional surfers and rock climbers and runners that go and use it in the field and have to give it the okay of saying, yeah, this, this works just as good, if not better than what was being used before in, in place of this material. That's a good process. Um, yeah, I'll I get... mean, that's why it's been five years and we, so far we've launched one hat room, but we've got a lot, a lot more to come. I'll get into a little more detail on, on recycling in general. So, Basically, in conventional waste collection, a hauler or recycler makes a profit from buying a material or buying garbage, sorting it out, separating the valuable, selling that at a profit. 
And across the world, this happens in different ways. I mean, in Europe, for example, it tends to force this on the consumers to do the labor, basically separating your plastics into one bin, your paper, your cardboard, your glass, your organics, all into separate bins uh, so that it's all separated. That's what we call source separation which is super efficient if, again, everybody does it. And then there's some cleanup, mostly automated, to remove those contaminants, and then it gets goes to a mill to be reused. In the U.S., the onus was taken off of the consumer, and it's called single stream. So all of that material goes into one bin. So your plastics, paper, cardboard, glass, metals, all into one, and then your organics and your garbage into another. And then the facilities that we sell, the one kind of similar to what I have behind me right now, sorts that material then again into its individual components and then it goes to a mill to become a new raw commodity basically and then so the most advanced systems in the u.s almost have no people working in them as they try to reduce labor but in other areas of the world where labor is cheap a lot of this process is still done by hand Uh, and as the technology continues to improve maybe in the future the garbage will be mixed in too and then we'll just take out as much recyclables as possible I guess my question is, how does Boreo fit into this framework in the supply chain? Like, do you own the plastics from basically the fishermen all the way until you sell it to Patagonia? So even while it's at the, the processing facility and being made into the pellets? We have a couple different streams of plastic now that we work with. That Each of them are, are slightly different, but in general, we do own the material all the way through to selling it. And, and that's been what we've done to date. What we do do is we have um, entities in each country that the Boreo headquarters, the U.S. company, subcontracts to see through that that separation and preparation process for recycling. And then that then gets so they they actually invoice us in our headquarter company in the United States for that process. In some cases, it's our own entity. In some cases, we, we partner with an existing entity in those countries. And, and then we see it through all the way. And, and what it does is it allows us to get a lot more control over our material. Big thing that we take care in is the traceability of our material so that we have that ability for the, the authenticity and the storytelling part of this. Every single source of net we get, we track it from the, that fishing community all the way to deliver to final products for, for clients like Patagonia. And that's all third-party audited by... Uh, the global recycling standard or the recycled claim standard to ensure that it's 100% post-consumer end-of-life fishing nets that have been recycled. And But really, we're trying to get to a level where we can have the beautiful equipment that you guys sell in our operations. We're slowly getting there, but nets being such, fishing nets being such a unique material, we've we've actually had to rely on a lot of manual labor it was literally just myself and my two other partners doing it all ourselves in the beginning, getting the nets, unloading it by hand, uh, cutting them in down into these manageable panels, washing them, letting them dry, visually inspect, cut out any visible debris, and then getting them to our recycling partners where, where they would then mechanically shred, crush, wash, and pelletize the material. And in some ways, we're still doing that now, but a lot of those process of cutting and washing and processing, pre-processing the material, we're getting more and more automated. Um, but really, when it comes to the, 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 the technology we've 
tried many times of, of identifying the different net material types because it's such a huge risk if you get another plastic material it mixed in with, with the, the other materials it can cause such an impact on, on the quality of the final pellet that we produce. We really have just focused on needing still to this day a lot of hands-on work um, and, and manual labor to, to, to have experienced people to see it through. Um, it's getting supported more and more by, by conveyors and, and automated systems, but we still do need to rely on that know-how of an experienced worker that can tell that each piece of net is in fact 100% consistent raw material that we need for this recycling run. So that also kind of prevents you from using other materials, I'm guessing too. Or do you, or I don't know, is Boreo potentially working on recycling different types of plastics to make into different products? Yeah, we, we get that question all the time. I mean, honestly, um, we'd love to in the future, but we have our hands absolutely full with fishing nets. And so what we've, we've consistently felt is we never would have gotten this far if we try to take on too many types of plastic. And instead, by focusing specifically on a few select types of material that are consistently present in, in end-of-life fishing nets, it's allowed us to not only um, have a solution and scale that solution for it, but get us this far with these innovative solutions with companies like Patagonia as partners. I, if we were just showing them any recycled mixed plastic that we were getting across, I don't think we could have ever made it to, to get to this kind of quality standards that we're achieving now. No, that's, that's a very good point. It's, a, it's funny because my dad talks about this expression, it's a Dutch expression, schoenmaker blijft bij je leest, which translates to basically a, shoe, a shoemaker stays within his, within his field. So like you, you focus on what you're good at and that'll actually get you farther than trying to do everything all in one go. Yes, that's it. That's it. Maybe I didn't even know it, but it was taking on those Dutch roots just, yeah. just from, from the bloodstream. And I guess, so through that, you're probably definitely, I mean, you told me earlier too, you were focusing on fishing communities and, and you would uh, expanded into Argentina and Peru. 80% of the plastic pollution comes from about 20 of the countries. And I mean, one third of the plastic in the ocean comes from China and Indonesia. Are there specific countries you're looking at next and why and what what makes those your big next targets yeah i mean asia is always the one that we eventually want to get to specifically um taiwan vietnam philippines these are these are places where it's it's really a, a significant opportunity there to work western africa is another place that we've continued to get feedback on a strong presence there and very little to, if any, regulation in, in managing these, this, this waste that's generated. But, but right now, I mean, it, it's just inherent um, that we're, we're working already in our own backyard in, in California, where we've, there's a program that the California Fisheries and Wildlife Program set up called the, the Drift Gillnet Buyback Program. So Drift Gillnets are really awful um, fishing practice. It's basically you have this huge net um, that's absolutely designed to trap marine life that people would previously just leave in the ocean. And when it got filled up, they would have satellite trackers to go collect it. 
And that's now been banned in California, that fishing practice. And so they had a program to buy back all the nets, the drip gill nets from the fishermen. And we've now been um, recognized as, an, as a partner to, to take all those nets to be incorporated into our program. So we're already collecting nets in California. Um, Mexico is just south. So our, our hope is in the next, I would say two years would, uh, since we're already in California to set up a, a, an operation, a smaller operation there so that we can start accepting nets in North America. We're really taking it step by step. I mean, honestly, we still, we just launched in, in Argentina and Peru a year, year and a half ago. And, and there's just so much more opportunity to expand there. So we're really focused on that in the near term. I mean, I mean, Peru has the largest fishing port by catch in the world. It's honestly breathtaking to see the number of boats in that port. And you can literally see the nets like, like pouring out into the streets where, where they're not, you know, they're trying to find, you know, you have these really amazing resourceful people on the ground, um, you know, making it into fencing for, for chicken coops and, but to have something consistently having an end of life solution is something we're really working together with the, with the fisheries, with the communities and with the Peruvian government. And we've got a lot of work still ahead of us to, to get that accomplished. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I know, especially with what we're dealing with here is everybody in the US wants to use less and less labor. And like you were saying that that first step of the process on getting those nets clean is pretty labor intensive. Uh, so I can imagine California would be a tough one. I guess in those yeah. areas where you are right now, what what are the biggest challenges for you in terms of growing Boreo there? I mean, obviously the immediate one has been COVID. Of course. Obviously. <laughs> I we left Chile in last February thinking, you know, I, I basically go every other month to go visit our operation in each country. And leaving at that point, just had a good solid run. See you guys back in a couple months, you know, obviously we have the day-to-day -day team running the operation and, and then it went 10 months went by where we weren't able to travel back there again. They shut the borders down. Chile took it extremely seriously as they should. Um, but it, it limited our ability where we, we literally had three months last year where people weren't even able to show up to work and, and do any business at all. We, we said we we're going to stick to paying everyone's salaries and, and get through this. And, and thankfully, again, with, with the business, the sales increasing through the, the raw material supply we're, we're growing with Patagonia, we could afford to do that. And, and actually, the return has been really positive for us. We have an even more committed team on the ground in each country. And uh, I just actually got back about a week and a half ago, and my partners are there now. Like basically, as soon as they lifted the, the travel ban, we went and uh, we have a lot of catching up to do. And, but the more, more inherent thing is, is being safe. And the priority number one is our workers and making sure traveling to work, operating in, a, in a, an environment. Granted, it's a big open warehouse, but, but with multiple people coming from, from you know, different backgrounds, making sure everyone's safe. And, and thankfully, knock on wood, everyone has been safe so far, but, it, but it's, it's an ongoing challenge for us. Yeah, it's a nice transition into into the circular economy. I mean, that you had mentioned too, which is kind of the the newest. I don't want to call it a buzzword, but kind of getting there in the recycling industry as a whole. I mean, the EU is already setting goals and creating a strategy and an action plan to work towards it. 
Um, and for those on the call who aren't sure what it is, the circular economy is right now like a traditional linear economy is where you make a product from a raw material, you use it, and then you dispose of it. And that's kind of what you were talking about there. And the, in the circular economy, basically, you keep the resources, use it for as long as possible, extract the maximum value whilst in use, and then recover and regenerate whatever you can from that. And the goal is to have no waste from it. And that can be through recycling or through other means. I mean, in a true circular economy, there's no virgin material going in and there's also no waste going out. That's a very lofty goal, obviously, especially in the short term. But it's companies like Patagonia that are making a difference because they're, they, they want to make that change. And again, it's the commercial fisheries. It's easy to work with them. It's, it's those artisanal ones that don't necessarily understand the benefit of having that circular economy to them at least. But I, I do see it in our industry too. I mean, companies like Procter and Gamble and Unilever—they used to be just making sure that their shampoo bottles, their Tide containers, their Axe uh, spray cans were recyclable. But now they're actually coming to our test facility and making sure that, um, or they're actually making their products out of recycled products, out of recycled material, and that's why. HDPE is much more expensive now in the global market is because that's where the, that demand is coming from. How can we get more companies to focus on that, I guess? How can we get more impact? I mean, it's on one side, again, it's, it's idealistic, but, but the, the whole every dollar is a vote, like people demonstrating that, that they're, they expect this of businesses and, and will drive their dollars to them will certainly justify it. But honestly, I think the reality is, is we need more enforcement from a government level. Simple things that we're working on in Chile are when we, when nets cross borders from, let's say nets are coming in from Peru, from Chile, they're now going to require that they, they need to have that address of the delivery location to be a certified end of life disposal site for that material. So it's not just going to some you know, Jose's backyard that's going to rig it up to try to, you know, do something that might not be so responsible. The step further where you're seeing, and sorry, I'm speaking very specifically to fishing nets, but that's my, my area, obviously. The, the most progressive I've seen is, is, is countries like Panama, where every single time uh, a fisherman in Panama wants to buy a new fishing net, he has to have a certificate showing the proper disposal of his old fishing net. And I really think that's simply where it needs to get to. Beyond that, it, it, it's, it, it sounds idealistic now to say like there should be no more virgin plastic going in and so forth. And, and honestly, the number of new petrochemical plants that are being made in the projections, it's all really staggering to see how that would ever be possible. But if we ever want to get over this crisis we're having with, with plastic pollution, that is, in fact, what I believe we need to get to. It's insane how many, not just new plastic products are being made, but how much of it is actually capable of being recycled again. And I mean, you'll, you, I'm sure Martin knows that way more than me, um, working with a, a variety of plastics, but that should just simply not be allowed anymore. Every, like the benefit of saying, hey, this is a recyclable product, meaning that at its end of life, you can actually recycle it. That should be inherent in every plastic product that exists today. How can you ever dare to make something that like a water bottle or what have you, I mean, granted water bottles are recyclable, um, that you can use for a moment 
And a matter of seconds that can then last hundreds of years to, to break down again. So it just doesn't make any sense. So I do believe that driving that circular economy, definitely on an industry level, so there's value for the, these companies to pivot because that's the fastest way for them to move. But really, I think it's going to have to be government driving it too, um, to get it mandated across all levels. Yeah, no, and I'm, I know specifically in Japan actually does the same kind of thing. Let's take refrigerators, for example. They actually, refrigerators are more expensive in Japan because as you buy it, you also buy basically what happens to it afterwards. They It goes to a specific factory who literally has workers taking off the doors, taking out the plastic, taking out the metals, and, and basically breaking it all down to recycle each individual component but that's built into the price of buying that refrigerator in the first place. So it's actually the consumer who, who holds that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that the, the more, you know, the more you're capable of making those good decisions in buying in the products that you buy and what you do with them when they reach their end of their life. Um, and that's why I think webinars like this are good because if nothing else, it's just increasing our collective knowledge and giving us all more ideas on how we can help. Is there anything else you want to add? Because I think that's it on my end. No, I, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity. I, I just, I echo again, a lot, of, like so much of my journey is thanks to um, the education experiences I got at Northeastern. Um, I didn't even get to top to mention, I put so much emphasis on the program in, in Chile, but I actually was also alongside that in, in Northeastern's IDEA program which is the, the Northeastern University startup incubator um, that gave us uh, the funds to put a down payment on our mold of our first skateboard and, and helped another round of funding to launch a Kickstarter campaign. And that was a huge help for us. And, and some of those, those mentors are, are still with us to this day in different capacities, helping us um, with the program. So um, definitely we'll be forever grateful for Northeastern University. Likewise here. I mean, I had, I, it was funny to read your, your bio before and your talking points because I had the same kind of uh, flow. It, through the co-op program, the experiential learning from Northeastern, it got to me to where I am today and having types of discussions like this. So I'm really grateful to, uh, to be involved still. <laughs>